This is part two of our conversation with Anna. If you haven't listened to part one of the Rouse series, please go back and listen to that first to get a better understanding of this case. When we talked about making this podcast, we plan to bring you stories of people whose lives have been touched by crime. A different story every week. When we did our first interview with Desmond Rouse, it became apparent that this could never be a one episode story. In fact, we believe the case needs its own podcast. And I don't know that we could do it justice here, but we're gonna try. You will hear from Desmond, one of the supposed victims. You will also hear from Desmond's wife, Anna, who is a wealth of knowledge in this case, as well as Bill Decker, the only parent of the children that is still alive today, and Mike Ware of the Innocence Project of Texas, who took on the case for Desmond because no one else would. All of this happened in South Dakota on the Yankton Sioux Indian Reservation, which is why the FBI and the Bureau of Indian Affairs were involved. South Dakota didn't have an innocence project at the time, and no one would help the Yankton Corps until Mike Ware decided to. Imagine being accused and then convicted of a crime you know you didn't commit. Now imagine that it was a crime that never even happened. That's exactly what happened in this case. Four Yankton Sioux men were convicted of a crime that never happened. Yes, you heard me right. The crime never happened. In January of 1994, police descended on the home of Rosemary Rouse, the mother of two of the accused, Desmond and Jesse, and removed 13 young children, most of whom were just visiting Grandma's house. I'm going to add a trigger warning here, but remember that I said the crime never happened. The four men were accused of sexually abusing five young nieces, aged 20 months to seven years. The children were taken from the reservation and placed in white foster homes and were coerced into saying their uncles abused them. All five recanted soon after the trial, but it was too late. There was evidence that the judge would not let the jury hear and their defense attorneys made many, many mistakes. This is the first episode of a series of how these people's lives were touched by crime. Today we will be talking to Desmond's wife, Anna, who will try to give an overview of this very complex case. In a later episode, Anna will tell us how she met Desmond and got involved. Did I hear somewhere that the judge uh, said that he knows better than the, the, the victims? Yes. What happened? Yes, he, he knows. He decides. It's like a Roman emperor decides. Wow. Absolute power. Absolute power and no comeback. Absolute abuse of power. Absolute abuse of power. Mm-hmm. Absolute abuse of power. And with, with, you know, terrible consequences for terrible everybody. Consequences. It's, it's devastating for the four people who were convicted and have to suffer in prison and still have to suffer with those kind of charges. You know, even though they served their time, they still have these charges against them. But also the children were, were abused like this and and feel bad that they were part of this, even though they're innocent, they're children, yeah. you know? Yeah. But they were used yeah. as well. And they, yeah. you know, it's a very tough life. Yeah, it is. You know, in one of the cases, Donovan, he committed suicide, you know? Yeah. He, he, he obviously he self self-harmed from for many many years 
And then in the end, he was uh, successful in taking his life, you know. But I've never seen a person with so many crisscross cuts across his chest, you know. That's why he just never wanted to take off his T-shirt. So it's uh, it's very traumatic. That's how he dealt with the, with the pain, you know, for, for self-harm, you know. But these are the real issues, you know. This should have been taken out, you know. And then you wonder, you know, where are the people then protecting the native kids, protecting the native community, allegedly, you know, where are they, you know? They're still being oppressed because no one wants to listen to them to this day. What they say is not important. And when what Desmond has to say is not important, but what they have to say is not important either. You know, no, it doesn't matter. Nobody it doesn't matter. Here. The witch is burned, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, if they could have, I'm sure if there would have been the death penalty uh, they, the, for, for these kind of charges, you know, they, they would have, they would be dead. So they gave them the next best thing to the death penalty, which is actually more gruesome choice, you know, which is like uh, 33 years in the pen, you know, and that is the death penalty with, with child those charges. Yes. Charges. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I cannot tell you how many times I've been uh, asked, I've been spat on by guards, you know, for visiting with Desmond. Um, I've been openly uh, called out to groom my children when I visited him with my daughters. Um, I've been called anything under the sun, you know, by uh, the prison system. So. I cannot imagine, you know, what, what he's been uh, going through on the inside, you know, what they've been going through, basically fearing for their life every day, every day of their sentence, you know. Um, it is a death sentence, you know, it, it is a death sentence. That is actually the miracle of the case, you know. They're still here to tell the tale, you know. The truth. The truth. Yeah. But I think that's really uh, very brave of them because of um, how people are obviously treated if they speak up. You know, it's a very um, abusive situation that if you speak up for someone who is poor and cannot speak for themselves, then you will be, you know, maybe charged with things or, you know, if you live in fear on the reservation, and uh, there are different jurisdictions that at any time anyone can come and pick you up. Yeah. Because of the thing. precedence yeah. from this yeah. case. Yeah. That's another thing I wanted to say is you have to always understand, you know, I look at it from my point of view. I look at it from my rights, my privilege, you know. I cannot understand what it is like because I have never been in the shoes of those people. Okay. I'm going to say. So it is, it's a very, you know, obviously, yes, a lot of people are afraid, you know, they say, and if I speak out, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be the next one? But then I can say, okay, well, don't be afraid. I can't say the police is going to support you or the justice system is going to support you. You're going to have support. Nobody's going to believe me. People are going to laugh at me, <laughs> you know, they're going to laugh at me. They're going to say, well, you know, you can help me. Anybody can come and take me, make up some story about me, take my children. This is the reality, you know. And I'm not going to get a nice prison sentence, you know, like a defendant of a different race would get. I mean, and I'm sorry to, I don't want to put the race card into this. You know, I really don't because I think it's overused in, in many ways. 
you know, uh, by many people. But uh, as far as South Dakota is concerned, the sentences are disproportionate. And the, they actually had a judicial um, commission that investigated this a few years ago, and they came to the same conclusion. Native Americans get three times the prison sentence um, that black or, or white defendants receive. And so they found out this fact, um, but then at the same time decided to do nothing about it. You know, So where do you start? What do you do? You know, everything is so unsolvable. You know, it seems it, it seems like what who is behind this? There has to be an organization behind this that it's so statewide. You mean behind their false conviction or right, right, and yeah, and the amount of term, you know, that they they get three times the amount. It, it's bigger than just a small court or one group of people. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, uh, you, you, yes. I mean, if, if uh, South Dakota would, start, would stop convicting Native Americans, uh, a lot of people would out, be out of a job because they make the majority of the prison population, you see. And their long sentences obviously ensure a lot of jobs for a lot of people within the prison system. Then you have to see, you know, how many public defenders there are. You know, obviously they're all paid. This is all tied in with the foster care system, you know. Children are taken away, you know, obviously for a Native American child to get three times the going rate because a Native American child is straight away a special needs child, you know, why is that, you know, who determines that, you know, who determines that a Native American child is a special needs child from the off, you know, then you look at the rate of um, uh, conviction for sexual um or for sexually related crimes against Native American men in South Dakota. And you come to the conclusion that by those rates, every Native American man by birth is a sex offender, you know? That is genetically impossible, you know? If you look at the figures, they're just impossible. We all bleed red, you know? Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> you know, Native American men are not any more a racist than any, uh, um, a rapist, than any white man or any black man anywhere in the United States, you know? So where do these figures come from? Why is nobody questioning them? Why is everybody protecting them? Including uh, tribal leaders, you know, including uh, Native American attorneys, you know? This is, you know, there are so many, there's so much money at stake. There are so many interests at stake, you know? Um, that they're just all, uh, you know, kind of protecting each other. And it's very sad. It's for the, yeah, how can I put it? You know, those, those, I mean, those children, you know, those people, the weakest in society, you know, they suffer from it. They suffer for it, you know. It's like, yeah, it's almost like a mob, mob culture of, you know, where one doesn't want to hurt the other. And look at the Guardian at Leeton. The children had a person uh, appointed to them. And it just, for this person, it was their very first appointment as well. They've since, uh, her name is Eva Cheney. Ever since, she's made a huge career as well in family counseling. She knew very well what she was doing too, you know. She wasn't acting in the best interest of the children. She was acting in her best interest for her career. And I think that um, part of it is that you don't, because people are wondering, you know, why don't we hear these stories? This is atrocious. And it's, 
like you said, it's still going on. It's it's happened uh, many, many times based on the Rouse case, you know, that made precedent and made it so much easier to convict Native Americans with no science or nothing. And I think one part is the victims, the Native American population, the, the poor ones who live in the reservation and have no recourse, they're afraid to speak up or talk about it. And there's a lot of shame and, you know, involved with just the charges. Yeah. You know, there's not, even though you're innocent, you know, those charges, you don't want to bring it up, right? Yeah. And then I think there's uh, all of us who like cannot believe it and looks away, doesn't want to know. You know, there's a whole system that that goes about doing this, the justice system, and you said like the prison system and the foster care system. And then there are a lot of people thinking uh, this can be true. This is yeah. monstrous. It's mistakes, doesn't it? People think there is no smoke without a fire. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. And from Native American communities, you hear, okay, yeah, okay, so they're innocent, they haven't done that, but they might have done something else, you know? <laughs> because, like, well, A, no, they didn't, and B, this is not what the justice system is, you know? This is not how it works, you know? A false conviction is a false conviction, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes, and we need to make changes to make it a little easier for. Well, I think make it a little harder for prosecutors to wrongfully convict someone. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I think it should be easier to get a conviction looked at and overturned and a new trial. Um, you know, not necessarily just give them actual innocence, but a new trial. Yeah. To make sure that the conviction was a good one. You know, cost is always a factor as well. Like in the Rouse case, it, it costs like $2,000 to convict them. You know, that's the sort of cost it is. But to actually go back to court for each man and, you know, the actual cost involved in it, you know, we're looking at like $300,000 per man. You know, that's, that's you know, it's there's, there's just no, uh, you just can't compare it, you know, with each other. That's why so many people are still, you know, locked in a prison system, you know, with no hope, uh, you know, of, of ever getting out. Hmm? If the prosecution <laughs> wouldn't fight it, it probably wouldn't cost as much. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. true. But if there was a comeback, you know, if they knew that they can't just tell whatever they want to do, uh, tell, they can't just do whatever they want to do, that they they could themselves be prosecuted yes. for wrongdoing. Yes. But they know that's not, that's not, that's not going to happen. Or a judge, you know, who investigates a judge, you know? We do. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only, you know, the only, the only option then have is to come forward and to keep talking, you know, and the media, you know, to get attention, you know, and to pressure, to, to build pressure. Or nowadays, you know, we have the internet, you know, the social channels, you know, we're more powerful than ever, at least, you know, to get the story out and to apply pressure like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Were all four of them convict, um, tried together or are they separately? Are there separate trials for each one? No, they should have had separate trials, but that's another mistake that their defense made. That's another issue. They had a very ineffective counsel, you know? For each attorney there, it was the first federal case. Uh, 
So they didn't even know federal law. They just knew state law and they made lots of mistakes. And the judge knew they were making lots of mistakes. By the way, for the judge, it was also his first case, which is another reason why Judge Pearsall doesn't want this to go. It's his first case. He built his whole career on this case. It's his legacy, you know, his judicial so legacy, something to be very proud of. So how did they Irony. decide to give them all different sentences if they were all tried together? Yeah, you would think they all get the same sentence. Yes, good question. You know, but because the, the jury had to determine, I think altogether they were over, mm, don't quote me on this, but obviously we had originally, Desmond's right, you know, originally we had not four defendants, we had five defendants. One defendant, uh, one defendant was another brother, Dwayne Rouse, and he was found to be innocent. You know, they had to find one innocent to make the conviction stand. Anyway, there were, I think, over, uh, if I remember rightly, I talked to the foreman, over 24 counts that had to be decided on, you know, uh, and then the jury had... Yeah, okay. And then there were several counts that were thrown out before the trial even started. So you have to remember how confusing this was for a jury too, you know, five dependents, so many different counts, and then having to decide and who put his finger where, you know, uh, or not, you know, and was it an index finger? Or was it a thumb? Or what was it, you know, or was it just a touch? I mean, it's just when you <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I did actually talk to the to the jury foreman. I did talk to him several times. I don't know if you came across the the interview that I did with him. And you know, he is also a man that is very troubled by what happened, and he also believes that they were wrongly convicted. At the time, he was a young man. This is a jury foreman. He was a young man. He just had a leadership position in his company, and he thought he would take charge of deciding the counts. Um, and he just did this like a managerial group meeting task, you know, like five men and did he touch her there? Did he touch her there? Who, you know, it would tick, 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 and then come back with the verdict. And nowadays uh, he says, okay, well, now he's a father and he knows that also in children, you know, children can have diaper rash, you know. Uh, you know, children, you know, can have all kinds of things, you know, now he knows that children are, you can't just tell, tell a four-year-old, you can't just ask them yes or no on anything. You know, have you taken the sweeties out of the cookie jar? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know as from what he knows now, he knows this, is, this all went wrong and he went about it the wrong way. But also he himself obviously doesn't know what to do about it, you know. And a few years ago, he also threw out all his notes and made his peace with it. But you could just tell that he was... Um, from his own words, uh, not very, not very happy. Yeah, if he's still alive, you know, he would obviously one of the people that we would ask to come on uh, to talk to him, you know. And then obviously also several other jury members who were contacted or, you know, who some of them obviously, they, they all, you know, it's not, there's not one I should think that doesn't know that there was something not quite right. I mean, as you know, there was also open racism in the jury and this was also brought up um, right after the conviction they had another hearing for this 
And um, it was established that uh, one of the judges actually did say that Native American men have sex with their kids or young Native kids as part of their culture. The, the jurors and the, the judge decided that that was not uh, biased. You know. Yeah. Wow. They, yeah. They need to learn a little bit about the culture before they make uh, decisions like that. Yeah. Well, yes, you know, and, and really, if you think about being a responsible um, judge and you hear something like this and you sending four young men to prison for over 30 years, you would think you want to take a second look just to make sure you really got it right, that you don't have that on your conscience, you know, especially if you're such a religious man. It doesn't sound like he has much of a conscience, actually. No, no, but yeah, the conviction just had to stand. But this is another person that we would definitely interview, which is uh, Verna Boyd. And um, she was then Verna Severson. Um, she was an alternate juror and uh, she knew one of the uh, jurors who was a primary school teacher by the name of Patricia uh, Picard, right? Mm. Yes. So, and she heard her making comments about the trial on Native Americans in general. And yeah, so there is absolutely no doubt that there was a bias. I mean, even Olson admitted to being biased, you know, and has changed obviously his opinions, you know, through the years, you know, and in retrospective, you know, by, by going back. I did actually say to him, you do realize that by the way you handled becoming foreman and how you actually handled all this, that you caused their false conviction. You do realize these men are innocent. So I did tell him that. You know. And you could still come forward. I told him that you could still come forward. Why don't you go to the press and talk about it? Right. You know, people just don't like to dirty their nests, don't they? It's just inconvenient, you know. People don't like to admit mistakes, I guess, but this is a very costly mistake for very many lives, you know, so I don't the know. The fact that you were able to get back in court in uh, like several times to have hearings proves that, you know, all the standards are met in, in when you're talking uh, post-conviction appeal, because it's, it's incredibly hard to even get back in court, yeah. right? Yeah. And then you have to meet the same judge yeah. who made all the mistakes. Yeah. It, you can pretty much say that this case has been in litigation forever. It's been in litigation now for 27 years and it's still in litigation. And you would think how on earth, you know, if there's, you know, this is such a horrific thing that happened and these men did these horrific things, do they always find supporters, you know? <laughs> you yeah know, how? you know how is that possible i mean what kind of people are we you know right here trying to bring a story out and and and, and trying to trying to help them you know by raising awareness you know also what, what kind of people are we you know we, we, we you know just see, see what i'm trying to say you know and, and also if there was any you know evidence or merit to any of the claims they would have proven it right you cannot stay in litigation for so long unless you have a multitude 
of problems with the case yes. and no evidence at all. Yes, of course. And it always goes in circles, you know, we always go in circles, we always go back. It's either the kids interviews. And then if we prove the interviews are rubbish, basically, that's implanted memories, uh, then we go back to the physical evidence, the doctors, then we prove the doctor's evidence is garbage, because it's junk science. Then we go back to the physical evidence. And then in the end, now we just go to a judge who comes back from retirement and just says to, uh, to the Innocence Project, uh, hey, okay, you are the Innocence Project. And basically everybody on this team that's working for these men, all these, the, the, the top, I mean, I really, have to, I really have to stress this. We're not talking about any kind of willy nilly experts. We're really talking about the top experts of the United States coming forward for four indigenous Native Americans from a reservation, the top experts in their field working pro bono, given their statements pro bono, unpaid. And then we have a judge sign, oh yeah, no, that's all bullshit, they did it. You know, I don't know, what else can you say? What else is there to say? And even a judge who does not wanna hear the alleged victims. I mean, are we all idiots? Are those experts are all idiots? They're all on national TV. You know, we got the woman that invented the colposcopy examination. She says the medical evidence is nonsense. It's nonsense. It's Sesame Street, you know. We have the top experts for, for, for implanting of memories, you know. What is this person? I mean, these, these are experts in their fields. What is South Dakota saying? They're all idiots, bullshitters. You know, they're all pedo friendly, you know. What what is South Dakota saying, you know? Yeah, the the thing that did it for me, uh, the belief in their innocence, is uh the parents sticking by the accused and the, the kids recanting. I mean, you know, we've learned how the police lie to children and get them to say what they want them to say. I've learned that in, in many cases that I've looked at. And, you know, that those two things ha have solidified in my mind that these four men were wrongfully convicted. Thank you. It's still ever so puzzling that you cannot set the record straight. You have all the evidence, you have all the experts, you have uh, truth on your side, like Desmond said, and you cannot take it anywhere. You know, people don't want to look at it, and, and, and it keeps going back to the same people who made the mistake in the first place, and the judge, and, and maybe the same state with the same bias against Native Americans. So where are the grown-ups? Yeah. Well, and one more thing I would like to say is obviously because I see it firsthand now are the consequences of living with this sentence, uh, not only being wrongly convicted, but then being thrown out in the street with, I think, $5, no support network, and these charges. Um, whenever I'm in, in the United States, I'm going with Desmond to his psychological assessment treatment, which is once a week, uh, which is really dehumanizing. 
and uh, humiliating. And so I'm very glad that I went with them a few times whenever I can um, to just set this, the record straight. Uh, the last time I was here, I was he was actually at work and twice the police nearly broke the down, door down here, uh, trying to find out where he is, what he's doing, what's his whereabouts, because he is obviously a registered sex offender. Uh, I cannot tell you how terrified I was <laughs> to experience that. Um, I did talk to the police officers. I did explain to them who I am. And I also told them that these, that he is innocent actually, and they can look him up online. And I do realize he's on the registry, but I was very glad that I was here and was talked to them. You know, I don't know what they expected to find here, you know, um, or why they're, they have the attitudes that they do have. Uh, but I can tell you that it's not over, you know, it's not over. And th these men, you know, they suffer the consequences of their false conviction every day. And they made to feel it, you know, um, they are. So there is no new beginning. There is no happy ever after, you know. Um, I'm, I'm afraid there is not, you know, there is no forgiveness of these charges or anything, you know. I'm not saying that they would deserve forgiveness because I say in this case, of course, you know, they are innocent. I'm just saying people should probably think about the consequences as well. It's a, it really is a life sentence. He is not free, you know, far from it. You know, he's very far from being free. Yeah. So we'll keep on talking, you know. I'm certainly not going to shut up anytime soon, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But that's good because this needs to be brought to light. All this needs attention. I mean, you know, those of us that are Americans, we just go through our lives not realizing that this stuff is happening on the reservations and and around the reservations. I mean, it's not, unless we live in those areas, it's not something that we have any experience with. But thank you for stepping up and helping Desmond and Jesse and Russell and Garfield because they need advocates. Yes, I agree. I mean, they need advocates and, um, you know, we're going to continue to to talk and bring the story out. And as we're doing this, we're also inviting other people to join us and we're going to interview, obviously, many more people and Thank you as well, of course, you know, to give me the opportunity to speak and, you know, Desmond and alleged victims and other people, you know, who are involved, you know, to tell their story. And like I've always said, you know, if anybody wants to know more, you know, they're very welcome to research and look into it because we just really have absolutely nothing to hide. You know, so we would be just really happy if anybody knocked on our door from whatever CBS and says, hey, you know, hey, where is, you know, this and that person? Where is he? I'll say, hey, you know, he's right here, you know, <laughs> let the camera roll. You know, we'll tell our story. Yes. It's the very last thing that anybody in authority wants, you know. They want us buried, you know, and to go away, you know, go away. And this is my greatest happiness to think that after all this time a judge judge Pearsall had to face an attorney in court again and he had to come back out of retirement 
as an old man now and he had to do this again knowingly you know that, that, that we're not we're not t- quiet mm-hmm. we're not silent you know we're still here and it's still an injustice right. and and you know and he had to face that you know and he's going to have to face it again you know so god willing so mm. yeah thank you very much thank you so thank you for um, being willing to come on and, and talk about this. Um, I understand that you are planning on launching your own podcast that has to do with the, the ins and outs of this case. There's so much to this case that, that we just can't cover here. Um, so we wish you the best of luck with launching your own and getting everything, everything out there. Okay, thank you. Thank you, yes, definitely, you know, we, we are in the process of doing this, you know, we realized that there has been uh, obviously great interest in the story. And uh, we also realized that we're not alone. Uh, you know, many other people from the Native American community, uh, relatives have been reaching out with several uh, other cases and issues or people want to contribute. Um, so yes, um, I do agree that this is uh, going to be a, an ongoing um, issue. And yeah, we have many more stories to tell and we hope to interact with our listeners. And also, of course, those people, you know, that are interested in uh, prison relationships, you know, how does it work? Uh, also just how does it work to be unjustly convicted in prison? You know, I have a loved one who is in prison. He hasn't done it. You know, what can I do? What avenues are open to me? Anything and everything, really. You know, so we see where this uh, journey takes us, you know, but we'll not be quiet, you know, and it'll be very interesting and very looking forward to uh, continue on this path. And thank you so much for your time and, and you know, basically guiding us in that direction, Kathy, you know, and, and team, you know, thank you. Thank you so much for listening in today. Tune in next week as we will be hearing from Desmond Rouse.